On today's episode, number 87, I get the honor of talking with Sean Michael Morris about what the best digital teachers do. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. It's always fun when you find someone on Twitter that with every tweet makes you think more critically about what you do. And today's guest fits that category perfectly. I'm welcoming today Sean Michael Morris. He is a digital teacher and pedagogue, and his experience is in networked learning, MOOCs, digital composition and publishing, collaboration and editing. He's been in digital teaching and learning for 15 years and has been profoundly influenced by the philosophy of Paulo Fieri, and so many of the contemporary analogs to him, the work of Howard Rheingold, Kathy Davidson, who's a former guest of Teaching in Higher Ed, Dave Cormier, and Jesse Stommel, who's also been on Teaching in Higher Ed before. And I'm, I'm just absolutely thrilled to have the opportunity to be challenged by him and to get to expose so many of you to his work. So welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Well, I talked a little bit about your bio, and I got it off of your blog, as you know, and it speaks so well to who I see you as just your whole person, but I know that there's a little bit behind that that I didn't share. Could you share a little bit about your professional endeavors? I, I'm currently an instructional designer in the office of the provost at Middlebury College. Um, I work with Amy Collier there, and you've spoken with Amy, actually, yes. in the past. Yeah, <laughs> and that, it's a real privilege to have that, to be in that position. I've actually done instructional design for several years. I started as an instructional designer. I was actually an instructional designer before I was a teacher, and I was in the corporate world. That was about, oh gosh, 14, 15 years ago, something like that. And then I uh, started actually doing teaching work, and kind of have been all over the place for the last uh, 15 years in education and, and in and around education. Right before actually coming to Middlebury, I was with Instructure, uh, the makers of the Canvas LMS. Um, I was there as an editor. I am learning all this about you. I actually, my, I grew up as a corporate training person myself. I didn't know we had that in common. Uh, yeah. And I didn't know about the canvas thing either. I somehow missed that. And, or probably it, I got it and then it went out of my mind. That's the more likely thing. Well, interestingly, know. in my time during canvas and, and, and as, as a company, I, I have only really good things to say about Instructure. But during my time there, I had to be a little bit more careful in terms of my public persona because I was now... I could potentially be seen as representative of the company. So I didn't actually write as much, and I didn't do quite as many sort of, I don't know, radical educator things during that time. So just in January, I switched over and, and started in Middlebury, and now I'm, I'm out there again doing, doing what I was doing before. 
in the intro, which you won't hear until this actually airs, I talked about just how much you make me think all the time. And, and I didn't say this in the intro, but I'll tell you now, it makes me angry because you make, <laughs> you make me slow down and go, oh, you mean I can't just be lazy and start using all these tools without really thinking critically about Aww. what's behind them. So it's, you know, you make me think it's a good thing. You're a teacher for me without necessarily being paid for it in this particular instance. Wow. But I really very, treasure That's that. very sweet, actually. You know, I've been working with hybrid pedagogy since almost since the beginning, and it's hard to know what sort of influence we're having. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to know who we're reaching and, and in what ways we're reaching anybody. It's always surprising to run into somebody who's like you, say, you know, um, in your email to me, you said you've been following me for some time. And it's like, really? I didn't. Really? What have you been following? What do you know about me? Yeah. When we got on the phone, I told you that I have been following you and I thought you had moved because in January, I did notice that you took the role there at Middlebury. And so you are re working remotely. Can you yeah. share a little bit about what it is like to coach some of the faculty that you coach and helping them design their courses? And, well, and maybe, maybe even kind of how you approach that in terms of the tools you use and the approach. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and at Middlebury, actually, a lot of the the faculty that I'm working with are also remote mm. because I'm working with people at their at their Monterey campus and then also in the language schools and those folks are are sort of scattered all over the place. In terms of actually just communication, it's just sort of finding the right tools for for talking back and forth and actually collaborating in certain ways. One of the things that actually prepared me for that is working with hybrid pedagogy because as hybrid pedagogy, as you may know, we started out with with staff that were in every time zone in the country. And now we have people who are in Egypt and people who are in England who are working on the editorial staff there too. So trying to figure out times when everyone can talk at the same time or, you know, you just have to be very creative in terms of the way that you communicate to try to make collaboration work. Are there any tools you can mention that work well to find good times that people can get together? Anything that you like to use? Yeah, sure. Um, Hybrid Pedagogy used to use uh, Google Hangouts. Every, almost every week, I think we would have a meeting, a Google Hangout meeting with the editorial staff. I tend to use whatever someone else is comfortable with. So mm -hmm. Jesse and I text back and forth all the time. With some people at Middlebury, there's you know people like email. There are still people who like email, which is mm -hmm. I think is charming. And then video, video is great. I like Skype. I was just introduced to Appear In, which is a really nice video interface. Uh, Google Hangouts is fine, that sort of thing. It's good though because you having a face to to sort of ground the voice. It's a more whole person experience. I agree. And you were you were sharing that Jesse, we had been over video. It's not we don't record the video, we record the audio. But it really is just you get the sense of the person, then you get to see their animals too, which is really fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes. My husband yeah. is allergic. So I have to just live vicariously through you as I look yeah. at your animals yeah. and Jesse's animals as well. Oh, well, well that's, that's an interesting thing too, is, is there's something very personal, personal about working from home. I mean, when I work in my home office, you know, you'll see my 20-year-old wander by in the background, or you'll see my dogs, or you'll hear them bark at somebody coming, which is actually a fair warning that they may bark during this recording. Mm. <laughs> so it, it, there's something, you can't be too professional because there's always going to be something that breaks down that professional facade. And I've been working remotely and from home for, yeah, the better part of 15 years. I was teaching in, in the doctoral program, and we have it's an eight-week course, and there's just a few times we get to get together live over some sort of synchronous video tool, and it broke down. The, the tool we were using stopped working, and I've actually shared about this on the 
podcast before because we ended up using my husband's Zoom account, and okay. I really ended up liking Zoom a lot. The quality of videos, profound, and how easy it was. Everybody shifted over. It wasn't that I needed to explain anything. It just all worked. But at any rate, while it was broken down, I panicked and texted my husband and said, help. And he came in, and he's taking care of our two small children. So you know what? You don't leave a, at that time, one-and-a-half-year-old by herself and the two-years-older son by themselves. You just don't do that if you'd like to have your walls remain clean, et cetera. And so they were they were in the background, and I was a little embarrassed because it's I want to be professional, and I want to be respectful of their time, and I don't want them to think that, that 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 is not the case and they were hysterical they loved it and they yeah. oh can we say would you please pull them up to the camera can we see yeah. them and then one of them even took a picture of it a little oh. screenshot and sent it to me later and I thought wow that was that was so it really was kind of fun like you say just allowing yourself to be a little bit transparent and let people see in who you are it's it can build a lot of trust and be really valuable to them yeah prior to instructure I worked for the Service Employees International Union, helping them with their digital campaign for organizing adjunct mm-hmm. teachers. And one of the things that I did was actually organize on-air Google Hangouts with, with some people who had, who in social justice circles and that sort of thing who wanted to be able to speak to this cause. And the most wonderful part of it was the fact that most of these people were at home when they were doing, the, when they were doing these live Google Hangouts that everyone could to watch and were recorded and put on a website and everything. Because you see these voices on Twitter or you hear them on, there were some people that, that write for like HuffPost or for Al Jazeera. And so you see them there and you get the sense of who they are. And then you see them at home and you're like, oh, you're just a per- you have to get groceries too. <laughs> exactly. And I think there's something wonderful about that in terms of the digital tools that we use. And I normally don't sort of get into talking about tools, but I think that that's important to consider how do we make that connection? Like that's what the tool is there for right, is, is making this connection over distance that is very difficult to bridge otherwise. I think in that way, the, you know, the sort of digital tools that we have available to us are really, are really useful. I love that you say that. I w- I've been thinking a lot about this because doing a podcast like this, I want to make it practical mm-hmm. and people can take action on it. And part of that is recommending a tool that's working well for us. So it's certainly we recommend tools, yet in my mind, the more it seems that you become whatever an expert looks like, you would know these tools look a lot like each other. (laughs) They really do. And sometimes I have just such a fine appreciation for those tools that decide we're not going to be feature rich, we're going to be easy. Mm -hmm. And then you forget about the tool. And then you're just you're in the conversation or you're teaching or whatever it is, It, it can just blend into the background and people don't even have to think about it. Agreed. Yeah, the very best digital tools get out of the way and let you be human. That's what they're there for. Speaking of humans, talk about <clears throat> Paulo Fieri and the quote that you've got on your website. Sure. So for the listeners at home, <laughs> <laughs> the quote says, I am hopeful not out of mere stubbornness, but out of an existential concrete imperative. And I believe that comes out of his final book, which is called Pedagogy of Hope. The quote actually, and well, actually, let me, let me just start, if I could, if, just tell a story. Yeah. My 20-year-old is, is sitting within earshot, so he's going to hear this story, and it's about him. But I <laughs> warned him ahead of time that I'd probably be talking about him, so that's okay. So when, when he was five, his mom and I took him to California to visit my dad there. And, <clears throat> of course, he'd never seen a beach. We grew, he grew up in Colorado, so he'd never seen the ocean, never seen the beach. So we thought, well, we have to go. So we went to the beach, and he, of course, wanted to build a sandcastle, because that's what you do. 
on the beach. The previous day, he had basically a traumatic experience at Disney World, Disneyland, because Disneyland for a five-year-old is a traumatic experience. It's not really that much fun when you're that small. Mm. So it was, it was sort of concerning to us that he had some sort of good experience at the beach. So we set him up. We were building a sandcastle, having a great time. But he didn't want to go in the water. Like, he didn't want to be anywhere near the water. And so here, he's building a building, and the day's wearing on, and the tide starts coming in, right? And as the tide's coming in, I, we're all, his mom and I are both recognizing, oh, uh, we need to move him, we need to, well, we don't want to panic him, we don't want to freak him out, so we're letting him build, letting him build. And at one point, we realized, okay, we really have to just pick him up and go, because the tide was really getting close. There was one point where I just, I knew I had to pick him up and, and get him out of the way, and, and as it came in, the wave came so close that I, I just had this instinct to, to kick it back, to try to keep the tide from hitting my kid. And it was, of course, it's, it's, it, it feels futile, right? Because it's the ocean. You're not going to hold the ocean back. But the instinct is still there. And I think it's a very important instinct. And I think this is, what, this is where that affinity for that quote comes from, is that I feel like in the face of everything, we have to maintain that level of hope that we're going to be able to push the tide back. It, it, may, seem, it may seem completely impractical. It's like, no, no, I can hold the ocean back. And I will hold the ocean back. I have to hold the ocean back. I think there's simply no other response to crisis than hope. I think sometimes that, that hope it needs to last a long, long time. And sometimes we see things fulfilled really quickly. But hope is ultimately agency. It's our choice, our ability to choose hope over despondency or resignation. Mm-hmm. And that keeps us attentive to possibility and also to our own imagination which I, I think it's our imagination and our, and, our, and our sense of possibility that enable us to solve problems. How is hope part of your pedagogy? What's the, what's the ocean that you are trying to hold back in your teaching? That's, that's a good question. It's also, that's also a loaded question. <laughs> because there's probably a lot of people who wouldn't agree that the ocean I'm trying to hold back is an ocean that needs holding back. There's a great deal in education now that has to that, that works against agency and that works against empowerment of students. But I also think it works against the agency and empowerment of teachers. These are systems that, that we have in place. These are bureaucracies, but there's also just this sense of the conversation of school as, as a way to get a better job. And I know that's a reality for a lot of people. A lot of people, especially in community colleges, they're going and they're getting their, their associates so that they can get a better job or they can get a, a raise at their current job. And I know that's a reality for people. And in some ways, that's, that's the ocean. The ocean is a reality, too, but, but we have to push against that. There has to be, there has to be some other reason or, or an additional reason or a deeper reason why we're in education. It can't just be for a job. When we teach, I also believe that we, we shouldn't just be teaching content, that we're not just teaching to standards. We're not just teaching to the test. We're not teaching so that our students will finish the semester and, and, and vacate the classroom and then we can start over again. In the same way again, I taught for a little while at University of Colorado Boulder. I taught creative writing there. And there was one semester that I taught where I didn't want my students to leave. I felt so close with them and felt so, so strongly that, they had, that they'd realized things about themselves and about their lives. And, and yeah, they'd also done some creative writing. But the point of the, of the course was really to figure themselves out, which is the work a writer does. Right. So it's actually all about creative writing. But at the end of the course, I didn't want it to end. I didn't want them to just pass a test and leave. 
of course it did have to end and, and all those things happened. But I thought very carefully about like my final words. What was I going to tell them? Like, how was I going to send them off? You know, we see the teachers in Hollywood all the time, right? The, the, the sort of like idealized teacher, the Robin Williams mm-hmm. and that, that sort of thing. And those, there's problems with that. It's not necessarily practicable, the sorts of stunts that they pull. But there's something that activates the imagination in anyone who teaches. And I think that's something to pay close attention to. When our imagination is being activated, when we feel unreasonably passionate about our subject matter, when we feel unreasonably passionate about learning, that's, that, that's something we need to follow. Too many teachers are, are caught in this cycle of teaching content, grading homework, teaching tests, grading tests, and then just out they go. I don't feel like, I don't want, teachers don't want that. That's not why they got into teaching. They want something more than that. And I feel like that's part of the ocean that we're trying to fight against, is this idea that this is just a bureaucratic exercise, because it's so much more than a bureaucratic exercise. I've recently been in discussions with people about designing courses, right? And uh, we're, we're currently running a MOOC MOOC, mm-hmm. higher pedagogy runs on a regular basis. And Would you just share real quickly what a MOOC MOOC is? Sure. So MOOC MOOC started. I love that. Every time I see it on Twitter, it just makes me chuckle. Yeah, and it started almost as a as a tongue-in-cheek sort of poke at MOOCs, right? It started in 2012. We had our very first MOOC MOOC, which 2012 was the year of the MOOC. And I was talking to Jesse on the phone, and he said, we need to do a MOOC. And I said, okay, well, let's do a MOOC. And, and I said, but, you know, it's got to be a MOOC about MOOCs, because higher pedagogy is about looking at things critically so it can't just be a MOOC about, like, English or a MOOC about, you know, it has to be a MOOC about a MOOC. So that's how MOOC MOOC got started. And we've run one every year since then. And this is the sixth iteration, and we're doing a MOOC MOOC that focuses on instructional design. Mm-hmm. With the idea that, that instructional design, and this is where some people would, would object to what I'm saying, but I think that instructional design as it stands is part of the ocean we need to hold back. Um, because it distances us from the students like you're talking about. It doesn't allow us to connect with students who are in pain. It doesn't allow us to connect with students who are, in, who are having a joyful time either. Like, it actually, it actually cleanses, if you will, or sanitizes the relationship between the teacher and students so much that now all, all that's going on is a really sterile sort of interaction. Now, that's not necessarily true of the people who are teaching within courses that were designed by an instructional designer. But there are no principles that I'm aware of in instructional design that allow for the human to creep in. It's very mechanistic. And if, if you do this, this, and this, then they'll meet this objective. And you do this, this, and this, they'll meet this objective. And then everyone gets a good grade. And if someone doesn't get a good grade, it's because they're just not a good student. It's not about the design at that point. It's about the student at that point. So it's, I think it, it disconnects us from critical pedagogy. It disconnects us from the, our students disconnects us really as teachers, it disconnects us from our teaching. Because I, I believe the teaching isn't method, but the teaching is, is intuitive to a certain extent, that we, we enter into a classroom. Every single time we enter into a classroom or design a new course inside an LMS, we have to step back and realize we don't know anything. Each time is new. And that's because the people in the class, the people in the class are new. And they are the content, not what we're there to teach. It's the people that are the content. So in, in trying to examine instructional design from that perspective, looking for ways that we can either modify existing instructional design or dream up a brand new instructional design um, that, that 
compensates for those sort of more qualitative experiences in a, in a classroom. We talked earlier about how nice it is when the tool just blends into the background. And part of using an LMS to some extent is to create some skeleton of consistency between courses so that I don't have to learn the interface every single time I go up and take a new class. Particularly, I think the more a program might be relying on technology, such as if it was a fully online class or a high flex class or something of that nature. How do you, as a person giving advice to to so many people within a program, how do you build with that tension? Yes, we need to have the consistency, but at the same time, I want you to break it and be completely <laughs> spontaneous. <laughs> or, is there a place where you've landed or does it just depend on the situation? I suppose it depends on the situation. To me, it's it almost always comes down just to dialogue. Finding out, okay, where where are you at with instructional design or with this course or with this content? Where, do, where are you coming from? What do you want to achieve? So as an instructional designer, for example, that's how I approach everything, is I approach by asking, okay, what is it that you're wanting to get from this? And I also want to know, what is it you want your students to get from this? And I don't want to hear that I want your students to finish. I don't want to hear that I want your students to get A's. I mean, getting A's is great, but, you know, that's... You can give A's if you want to give A's. So, but so asking those sorts of questions and so really starting that far back and then, and then looking at, okay, well, what tools can we use to make that happen for you? So each time can be different. Some teachers don't like Twitter. That's fine. Some teachers don't like social media at all. Some teachers want to, they want to live entirely inside the walled garden of the LMS. That's fine. As long as what you're doing inside there is inspiring agency and helping your students learn about themselves and learn about, about, about their own power, you can do that inside LMS. Um, Jesse posed the question the other day on Twitter, could you have a critical pedagogical, you know, a pedagogically sound course that had to use Blackboard and turn it in? And I was like, yes, you can. <laughs> Even if those are the tools you have to work with, you can hack them, you can figure them out. You can, you, can get, you can ask your students to get distant from them and say, hey, we have to use Turnitin. Let's talk about Turnitin. So let's, let's try to figure this. And you know what? Why don't you submit things to Turnitin that you know you're going to get a high plagiarism score on just to see how this system works. Let's, let's figure the system out. Let's break the system. There was one time when my older brother, this was before, this was some time ago, my older brother emailed me. And when I emailed him back, Google supplied some sort of ad next to his email, Right that had to do with the content of our emails. It read our emails and it provided an ad. So I emailed him again, something completely bizarre, and, and it broke the system. Google had no ad for that. So if, as soon as you're aware that that sort of thing is happening, that you're being manipulated by some sort of software, manipulate it back. I mean, we are the people who are in charge, after all. We have agency and software doesn't. That's, I don't know if I even answered your question, but there's, there's, there's that sort of idea of, of let's start from scratch. Let's start from the very beginning of what you want to accomplish, and then let's talk about tools. Give me an example of what it has looked like for you to see a student get agency. Can you think of an example either in a class that you've taught or a class someone else has taught? What would that look like? So my creative writing classes long, long time ago, I used to do something called an adventure report. I didn't care what it was they did, but I wanted them to go out and do something that they either always had wanted to do or something that they never thought they would do, something completely outside the norm for themselves. 
And I had, I had people doing things from like all over the spectrum. I had one person who had never tried caffeine. So she went into a coffee shop and she ordered some like triple shot thing, right? And then reported on the effects of caffeine, which was, it was a great experience for her. It was small. It wasn't a big step or anything. It wasn't jumping out of a plane, but it was, it was that. And it was important to her. And so she had choice in that. And she, had, she could decide what she wanted to do. I wasn't, all I said was go out and do something that you've never done before that you've always wanted to do. My favorite was, well, I had one person who, who went and sat under, this is in Boulder, Colorado, and sat under a bridge, uh, sort of a walkway, and tried to collect money from people. And he collected a bunch of money, and then he donated that money, but he'd never done that, and he wrote about the, the, the experience of, of that alienation that occurred, and the, and the people ignoring him. And he'd never really known that was what it was going to be like. So that was something that he chose. And it changed the way that he thought about the world. That one, that one tiny thing, and it didn't change everything about the way he thought about the world, but it changed a tiny thing about the way that he thought about the world. But my very favorite was an ROTC guy in my class who was like, you know, tall and buff and totally masculine, right? And he went into a Macy's and tried on women's clothes mm-hmm. and, had the, and had the experience of being told by people, you can't do that. You can't go into the women's dressing room. You can't do this. You can't do that. And he reported on that. And it was this whole sort of exploration of gender, which he didn't expect to have. He thought, I'm going to go goof around. But then he had this whole experience of gender. And it was really, for him, it was really empowering. Even just, even just teaching poetry, I think, is, is something that, that amplifies agency in, in students' lives. As long as you're not telling them, okay, write like Shakespeare. The, the secret to at least what I found, the secret to helping students find that agency. I mean, because they've got it. They have it in their lives. They just, for some reason, they lose it when they come into the classroom. It hasn't been built into the classroom. So as soon as you give them permission to have it, they'll take it. They'll do it. And I think that if you just don't put, the, if you just don't put expectations down, if you don't say it has to look like this, it has to look and feel like this, it has to be this kind of thing that you're doing, then then they're going to they're gonna figure it out. And that's agency. They'll do their thing. And I'm going to do a 15-second rant about, and then don't ask them to put an 800-word post on the discussion forum, and then you have to reply to at least three of your colleagues' posts. And those replies need to be of substance, and they need to have this, this, and this, because do I actually, I probably am more of an expectation setter than you might agree with. We might, we might uh, find some tension there, but what you just described, I could have listened to for hours. And when we really find something like that in our teaching, we don't need to say that it needs to be 800 words or that you have to respond to so many other people. And it doesn't have to be legalistic like that, that, that to me, but yet that consistency over time and, and trying to grab where we can the effects of the learning and the teaching is is also important too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that teachers, I often hear from teachers that say, you know, they'll say, well, but you know, certain that's really nice for you. And that was a creative writing class and that's really great. And I can't do that in my, with, with my curriculum and the, and the expectations. And that's, again, that's interesting because the expectations are things we inherit. Our administration has expectations on us. We then have expectations on our, on our students and I think that we've got to break that cycle. Someone has to stand up and say, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not, I'm not living up to your expectations. But what I was going to say is, is that, uh, so I have a lot of teachers who say, well, I can't do that because of the expectations of my administration. And I guess I would ask them to, to really question that and to find 
small ways to go ahead and do it. You know, we aren't being observed that carefully in our classes. And so, for example, when I taught a composition class online, I thought, so composition, no one wants to take composition. Everyone hates taking composition. And, and I, didn't want to, I didn't want to grade those essays. Are you kidding? Who wants to grade, you know, a hundred essays about some conflict in, in politics? Like, this is boring as, as all heck. So I gave them an adventure report as well. It's a composition class. But it was one of the very first things that we did because I wanted them to recognize that there was a quality of personal narrative that goes into every composition. That you're not divorcing yourself from your writing at any point. And a lot of academics, especially folks who have you know, gone all the way up to their PhD and that sort of thing, would, would disagree with me. And they would say, well, actually, you're supposed, to, you're supposed to leave the person out of you, you know, your personal side out. You don't even use the first person in writing, right? Which is not the case on hyperpedagogy, by the way. We, we are all about people's stories on hyperpedagogy. But, but I try to encourage learners to recognize that no matter what you're writing, no matter what your homework is, no matter what your assignment is, you are there. As a human being, you are there. And don't leave that behind because that's what's really going to matter in the end. This is the time in the show in which we are going to each get to share a recommendation. And I'm going to actually pass mine over to you because my recommendation is that all of us, including me, check out some of the new courses that you are offering on your site. So could you talk a little bit about your classes and how we could get involved in those? Sure, sure. So Digital Pedagogy Lab is a kind of foundation or school that Jesse and I have, have started based off of hybrid pedagogy and the work we were doing there. And, and we offer online courses. We also offer a, a yearly summer institute, which this year will be in August at uh, University of Mary Washington in Virginia. But the online courses, which you can find at <laughs> uh, digitalpedagogylab.com slash courses, these are courses that, that try to use an online format. We use Canvas in the courses, but we try to use the online format to really explore ideas of pedagogy. And all of them are set up in a way that, that what you're really developing is community. Um, and sharing, sharing and collaborating with, on, on, on ideas uh, with other students. There's obviously, there's some, like, quote-unquote, required reading. There's discussions, but no, like, you know, post once or so on twice kind of requirement. There's Twitter chats. There's all kinds of different fun activities that we do that really try to get people outside of their standard way of thinking about pedagogy. We have one coming up, actually, really soon called Teaching with Twitter that Jesse is teaching that's all about using Twitter in both your online classroom and your hybrid classroom. So in order to bring students into a much larger conversation with other educators and with other students and with the public at large. And there's some Twitter activism stuff in there. And there's, there's a lot of other stuff that relates to using Twitter. And then we have a couple of others coming up this spring. There's the intro to digital humanities pedagogy, which should be really interesting for some uh, digital humanities folks out there. There's a learning online course that I'm teaching um, which just explores the whole idea of what happens when we bring learning online. And then we'll be teaching a, a course actually in, uh, with me and Amy Collier, we'll be teaching a course on critical instructional design. And for anyone that hasn't been listening for that long and missed the episode with Jesse, he gave an episode where he, I, I wouldn't say it was an overview. I don't think either of us was that focused or disciplined to stay <laughs> on it, but the subject was teaching with Twitter. And we talked a little bit about the courses there too. So I'd encourage people to check out that episode. I'll be linking to all of the things that we're talking about in this episode at teachinginhighered.com slash 87. And now I'm going to pass the recommendations officially over to you. I know you have a sure. few things you want to recommend. 
Sure, yeah. So these are all books. So I currently I'm reading through three books, A Pedagogy for Liberation, which is Paulo Freire and Ira Shore. And the thing I like about that book is it's actually it enacts critical pedagogy because it's a conversation, it's a dialogue between Ira Shore and, and Paulo Freire. And to me, the, the, the best pedagogical research is dialogue. So to me, it's just, it's really wonderful to read it. Then I'm also reading the Qualitative Manifesto, which is, <laughs> it's the other side of the coin for positivism, if you will, and trying to figure out ways that, that we can look at things from a qualitative side as opposed to a quantitative side. And then I'm also reading Complexity Theory and, and the Philosophy of Education, which is sort of less emergent than I would expect in its format. It's pretty standard educational material, which is sort of funny to me because it's about complexity. Um, but one thing I want to throw out there is actually probably one of the most critical pedagogical books that I've ever read. It's a middle grade book called Savvy, and it's by Ingrid Law. It deals with the sort of, it's a coming of age story, but it deals all, it's all about agency. It's all about understanding how, how powerful you are and how the effect you can have in the world and, I, and, and, and the ways in which that can be squashed. Um, so really, really good book. I have been trying to force myself to get through a book about the history of the middle, the conflict in the um, Middle East. And oh, <laughs> uh. <laughs> it helps me fall right to sleep. <laughs> but, <laughs> I think I might need to pick Savvy up. It sounds like maybe <laughs> so I need How to get lost in a book. Yeah, it's and it's definitely a good book for that. If you if you like middle grade fiction, it's it's a delight. It was a Newbery Honor winner mm -hmm. a few years back. So it's it's a great book. But I also want to mention that my favorite that a lot of my favorite texts are, are those that are always being written, specifically some people's Twitter accounts. And if I, if, if I can, I would like to call out actually oh, do it. Um, a Twitter account of Simon Enser, who's, who has a really creative, critical engagement with education, which I find really refreshing and also at times incredibly poignant. He's also a blogger. You can get to his blog, I'm sure, through his Twitter account. And then there's Pat Lockley, who technically isn't an educator, he's a technologist, but he is the only person I know who can wear a Pikachu hat and also grind you into theoretical dust at the same time. So he's, he's <laughs> and, and you're smiling the whole time while he's doing it. He's, he's amazing. And these are people whose, whose stories, whose texts are always being written. Um, and I think that the most important voices, those are probably the most important voices are the ones that we don't hear enough from. So we look at books we look at publications, we look at, at journal articles and that sort of thing. And that's one representation of, of what's being said out there about education. But there's so many people who are not being published. There's people who aren't fair, who aren't bell hooks, who aren't Jesse Stommel. They're the educators without publication credits who never get to tour or, or have a keynote, but have incredibly important things to say. Thank you so much for sharing those. And I've captured both of them. And thank you for coming on the show and being so gracious with your time and all I, I just had really a great time talking to you. It's just like talking to you on Twitter only. <laughs> I get to see the dogs. And I don't get to see the dogs on Twitter quite as much. <laughs> <laughs> no, not quite so much. Yeah. But yeah, well, thank you for having me. It's really, really a pleasure. And I'm just looking forward to continuing to learn from you. And thanks for all that you do. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode number 87 of Teaching in Higher Ed. 
And thank you to Sean Michael Morris for sharing so much of your wisdom with us today. If you have yet to subscribe to the weekly email that I send out, it's just once a week and you'll get an article about teaching or productivity written by me and also these show notes that have all the great links of the things that we speak about during the show will come to your inbox automatically and you don't have to remember to go to teachinginhighered.com slash 87 in order to find it. But if you would like to, you can go to that link and comment about anything that you heard on today's episode. But if you want to subscribe, that's at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. I welcome your feedback on the show. I welcome it in a couple of ways. One is it's always great when you write reviews on iTunes or whatever service it is you use to listen to the show. It just helps other people be able to discover it. And I'm just really enjoying seeing so many of you follow up and do that. And in addition to that, another way to give feedback is at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. Thanks to all of you who have been sending emails to me with encouragement and suggestions about the show. I really do treasure that and it just helps me be better at what it is that I do, trying to bring you great content, great interviews every week. And just help us all be more effective at our teaching and more present in our lives. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time.